It's, a, it's good to be with you here this morning and a privilege to be able to share God's Word with you again. I hope you've all had a great week and that you're wide awake this morning and ready to receive God's Word. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 13. We'll read from verses 16 to 18 this morning as we continue our look at the false prophet. Revelation chapter 13, verse 16. And he causeth all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads, and that no man might buy or sell, save he had that he had the mark, or the name of the beast, or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him that hath understanding count the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is six hundred three score and six. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your precious word, and I just pray that you would use me now, that our hearts would be humbled before your word, that we'd be ready to receive it. Lord, I pray that each and every one of us today would walk away edified and challenged to live more for you. We ask that you bless our time now. We ask that your name may be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Last week we looked at the union between the state and religion. Do you remember that? And the danger that existed when the state or the government had an official religion attached to it. And when those two got together... When those two uh, entities or, or systems uh, worked together, then it was, in most cases, the worst of all possible outcomes. And we looked at history, and we looked at, uh, in the past, especially what happened to Christians, when the uh, false religions got together with the governments and kings and emperors, that persecution more often followed than not. And this week we're looking at the extension of that. We're looking at uh, the next phase of that when the false prophet, um, who is the leader of the final false religion in this world, uh, teams up together with the Antichrist and Satan, who gives both of them power. Throughout history, thousands, if not millions, have been slaughtered by government and church for not following state religions. During the Dark Ages, the church persecuted, the official church persecuted thousands with the aid of the king and emperors. And this will once again happen during the tribulation period. When the head of the world government declares himself to be God and the head of the world's false religion pledges allegiance to him, we have then the culmination the worst possible situation that can happen. So today, we're going to look at the next phase of this. What happens when religion joins itself to the state? We're going to look at what happens when the economy is then tied into religion as well. And in a nutshell, um, in a masterful stroke of brilliance, the false prophet single-handedly makes worship of the beast in the world an almost universal occurrence. That's what happens in these next three verses. We're going to look at how he, how he manages to achieve that. Look at Revelation chapter 13, verse 16. And he causeth all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads. This is commonly referred to the mark of the beast. Very popular subject. Very, um, very popular amongst theologians and every uh, group that calls itself Christian or is associated with Christianity. Um, if you, you type that, that phrase on the internet, you'll get about a million websites with every type of, uh, of uh, idea and people associated with it. People have already worked out who it is. My job today is not to tell you who it is. I'm not, unfortunately, I'm not going to tell you who it is. And the reason is I can't. And I'll tell you why a little bit later. 
But this mark of the beast is probably the most quoted and least understood end time prophecies. And as I've said, there's been much, much speculation concerning this mark, or specifically this word, this Greek word, charagma, which is affixed to the right hand or the forehead. The word translated mark in our Bibles literally means graven. Okay? Um, and it con conveys the sense of being branded. That's probably the, the closest. When the King James translators um, uh, translated this particular word, they, they did it with the word in. You'll notice that it says they were marked in their right hand and in their forehead. And this is probably to signify what type of mark it would be. You see, this is not some sort of sticker that's going to sit on the outside of your skin. This is not some stamp that you get on the, on the top of your skin. This will penetrate the skin. This will be in. This will be much like, or possibly like, something like a tattoo. Or something like a hot brand or a cut. Now, let's see who receives the mark. The scripture says here that the regulation or this decree is for all classes of people who worship the beast. And it says he causeth all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark. Now, every class is practically included here. Every class is included in these three contrasting pairs. You have the small, the small people who, who are seemingly insignificant, don't have much authority or power, and then you have those who are also great, people who are very important in society, regardless of what country they're in. Then you have the rich and the poor. In economic terms, the poor, those who have very little money, very little assets, and even those who have much assets and much money. And then it says free and bond. Those who are free to live their lives, as we are, uh, in countries that are free, and those who are bound, those who are slaves to their state in their society. This range covers pretty much everyone. doesn't leave much room for anyone to slip through the cracks here. You're included if you live. So no, ex no segment of society is going to be able to escape this particular edict. But by mentioning every group, and this is, this is something we need to pay attention to here, by mentioning every different group in society, John wants to make it clear, in fact the Holy Spirit wants to make it clear that this mark, which was very commonly used with slaves, would affect everyone, doesn't matter what class you were in. Now, why do they receive the mark? Or where do they receive it? They receive it in the, the forehead and on the hand. And the reason for that is that it's visible. If you had a mark under your foot, you wouldn't know whether you um, had it or not. So the idea here, here is that the mark would easily be seen. And there's something interesting here. You'll notice that they have a choice. They have a choice where to get the mark. You can have it either on your up here or you can have it on your hand. Now, this may indicate different classes of people when it, uh, who were um, worshipping the beast. You see, it may have to do with the fact that those who are really devoted, those who are promoting the worship of the beast, w wouldn't mind to have something across their forehead. You see, they're going to love him so much. He may even have a priesthood of people that encourage and lead everyone else in his worship, maybe they will, they're the ones who have the mark on their forehead. Maybe the ones who are simply going along with the flow and don't want to make it that conspicuous, maybe just have it on their hand. There may be two different classes of people here. Let's look at a bit of history. Historically speaking, okay, marking with a brand on a person was actually very common in those days. It was very common. Mar masters used to mark their slaves. 
in that way. And slave owners used to brand their slaves or servants much the same way that cattle are branded today. It simply means that if you were marked, you were owned. And slaves were regarded very similarly to a piece of property that you owned. Roman law in those days regarded slaves as mere chattels. They were subject to the will of their masters, against which they enjoyed no protection at all. Everything they were told to do, they had to do. And the Roman masters were allowed to do with them whatever they desired to do. They could kill them, torture them, do whatever they wanted with them. They were theirs. And no one could tell them what they couldn't do to them. Punishments were often inflicted upon slaves in, in merciless ways. Hard labour, whippings, brandings, breaking of joints or bones, branding on the forehead with letters denoting what type of slave they were. You see, cattle are branded with a particular brand and if the cattle runs away, they, you could identify whose it was, correct? So the idea is an identification mark. Well, who's more adept at running away? Humans or cattle? Humans. So if you were a slave, you were more likely, if you weren't happy with your situation, to run away. Now, the Romans had an interesting way of dealing with uh, runaway slaves. When they were caught, they would be brought back, probably punished severely, and then they would be branded on their forehead with the letters F-U-G, which was short for fugitive. They were branded on their forehead. They may have not had a brand on their forehead. Normally they were possibly branded on their legs or their arms. But if they ran away, they'd be branded on their foreheads as a runaway slave. If they, were, uh, if they lied to their masters, they'd be branded with another name on their foreheads. It wasn't a nice place to be. And Roman society was built upon slaves. The whole Roman system required slaves and servants, otherwise the whole system fell down. The Greeks had their own uh, branding for slaves. Anyone know what that is? They, the Greeks would brand their slaves with a triangle. Okay? They'd be branded, I'm not sure if they were branded on the head or on, on the hand, but they'd be branded with a triangle, and that was the first, that was the first letter of the word for slave, which was doulos. So you possibly had a, a triangle on your head if you were a Greek slave. In those days, and even today I think, soldiers voluntarily tattooed themselves or punctured their arms with the names of the generals they served under to show their allegiance to that general. In those days, devotees of idols, if people worshipped certain idols, they would brand themselves with the idol's symbol to show the world that they were the followers of that particular God. Now in the Bible we find also a branding of slaves. Actually amongst the Jews there were slaves. Slightly different in, um, in character to the, actually severely different in character to the Roman and Greek slaves. If you were a, sl a Hebrew slave in the Hebrew society, you were probably there because you owed a debt you couldn't pay. So you then had to work it until you paid that debt off. But in some cases, slaves or servants in the Hebrew system, when they finished paying off their debt, their debt had an option. And the option was either, you had two options, sorry, you, had, you could either go away and you had your freedom once you'd worked off your debt, or you could decide if you loved your master, if you liked the, the type of lifestyle that you were living and you had nowhere else to go, you could decide to stay. At that point, they were branded. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 21 verse 5 as we look at that type of branding. 
Exodus chapter 21, verse 5 and 6. And if a servant shall plainly say, I love my master, my wife and my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him unto the judges. He shall also bring him to the door or unto the doorpost. And his master shall bore his ear through with an awl and he shall serve him forever. If a Hebrew slave or servant decided to, to stay with the master that they were with, they would be branded by putting a hole in their ear. And that hole, used by a particular instrument into the door, um, would signify, it would be witnessed by judges, and it would signify that that person now would stay and had devoted themselves to that family or that master forever. In John's days, when John wrote this, uh, this book of Revelation, slaves were branded by their owners. It was a very common occurrence. So anyone who read John's letter when it was written would have been very familiar with and would have immediately recognised the symbolism of being marked on the forehead or the hand. You see, they would have witnessed it every day. If you were out shopping in the markets, for instance, you would have seen literally people next to you with marks on their hands or in some conspicuous place. So you knew who was around you, whether they were slaves or whether they weren't. Imagine that. It was a very common, common thing to have happened. You would know the person next to you was owned by someone else. This person over here would be owned by someone else. They'd have different symbols depending on who they were owned by. It was very common. So when, when John wrote this letter, when someone read it, immediately they would recognise what it meant to be marked on the forehead or the hand. They would immediately equate that with being a servant of someone. Now let's look at the mark itself. The mark actually comes in a, different, a number of different forms if we look at Scripture. Verse 17 says, And that no man might buy or sell, save he that had the mark, or the name of the beast, or the number of his name. You see, it wasn't just the mark that allowed you to buy and sell. It was whether you had his name, his number, or his mark. There were three different options that you actually had. I want you to take note of that. There are a number of ways to satisfy the economic requirements for you to buy and sell. The question here is, why? Why this specific mark? You see, this is a, a very... Uh, the mark of the beast is something that, that everyone speculates about and it's probably the most uh, looked into and, and theorised uh, idea that's going around, especially today. But the mark may simply be a symbol of the Antichrist's power, of the fact that people, people are devoted to him. The mark may simply be some sort of a logo. You see, when you, uh, all good marketers know, people who have done some sort of marketing uh, degree or, or advertising degree, know in order to, to win the hearts and minds of people, a good logo goes a long way, does it not? Because a good logo is a good logo is memorable, something simple. Think of think of every large corporation in the world, and every large corporation in the world wants you to be wants you to easily remember who they are by their logo. In a similar way, the Antichrist may have his own logo. So if you have that logo embossed in your skin then you're telling the world that, see, I belong to him. But you may also have his name. His name written on your forehead, which would be a pretty strong sign of devotion, would it not? If you had his little logo on your hand, it'd be one thing, but to have his name across the top of your skull is, is a bit of a different thing. It would show that you were 
wholly devoted and sold out to him. It would be quite a dramatic show of devotion. There have been, as I've said, many ideas concerning the mark itself. People often speculate today that uh, it will be some sort of barcode okay? um, that, that people will need to, you can scan or some sort of microchip that you can put under the skin that, that things can read. From what I, I see here, though, that's not necessarily the point. The point here is that it was something visible. It had to be something visible to be seen that you would show the world that you belonged to him, that you were devoted to him. That's why there's an option of having his name, his number, or this mark. And the purpose is not necessarily to control economic function. You see, some people say that it's, oh, it's, it's only to control the economy and stuff like that. It's, it's not necessarily... That wasn't the main purpose. You see, if you force people in the world and you give them the only, op one, only one option, they either take the mark, have his name or his number, embossed on them somehow, unless they can't buy or sell. What are you trying to achieve? You're, trying, you're forcing people to make a choice. You're forcing people into a corner where they have to make a choice. Either live and take the mark and show that you're a follower of this, of this antichrist or get ready to die. So it was a dramatic way of forcing people to make a choice between the antichrist and someone else. You see, Christians and those who were sold out to God would not take the symbol, would they? So what it was doing, it was ident immediately identifying those who weren't following the state-run religion. It was forcing them to be identified. You see, if you went to a shop and you didn't have the mark, immediately they would identify you. And your name could easily be written down and you could be numbered. So the idea is not necessarily to control economic functions, but to force people to follow the beast, to sell themselves to the beast and worship him, and to identify those who were not willing to worship the beast. Starvation or worship of the beast, that's your option. Not a good option, is it? The mark is a token that people are beast worshippers and it serves as an identification necessary to conduct business in order to for the necessities of life. Without the mark, a person would be unable to engage in routine commerce. But the Bible says that anyone who accepts this mark during the tribulation period has already made his choice and that choice will permanently disqualify its wearer from heaven. I want to make a significant point here, and that is this. When a person takes the mark, what they're doing is rejecting Christ and accepting the worship of the Antichrist. You see, by having that mark, what they are essentially doing is pledging allegiance to him. That's as simple as that. The idea of the mark is that you would pledge allegiance. You see, during... The Roman days and, and, uh, and during the, the early Christian days, people were forced to stand before statues or, or gods to prove their allegiance to the God. And if you didn't, you were most often killed. Christians were often, because of their faith in Christ, were brought before statues of emperors, for instance. And they were, they were told, offer that sacrifice to our emperor. And it put them in a dilemma. They would either offer the sacrifice or they would die. And Christians who were true would refuse that and they'd face death. And this is the similar thing that's happening here. They've got, a, they've got a choice here. They've got a choice to make. They're told, take the mark or die, basically. Those who were true Christians won't take the mark. They'll be earmarked for extermination. Those who 
don't really care too much, are happy to take the mark, pledge allegiance to the Antichrist to serve him, and then they're allowed to go about their uh, regular lives. You see, taking the mark meant pledging allegiance to the Antichrist and rejecting Jesus Christ. That's what it meant. And it was final and irrevocable. You can't, once you made that pledge, that's it. There was no going back. And it's very much like when a person is saved. When a person is saved, they're pledging allegiance to Christ, are they not? They're recognising Christ as King and Lord. They accept him as that. Once you're there, there's no going back, is there? Not that you'd ever want to. But once you're in, you're in. The fear of uh, some Christians today is that they may accept the mark accidentally. Okay? That somehow the government's going to come up with some ID card or they're going to, when you're standing in front of a, uh, a teller machine, that it's going to emboss something in your head without you even realising it and then it's going to be too late. It's not like that. To receive the mark, a person has to pledge allegiance to the Antichrist. They are going to willingly do it, knowing full well what they're getting themselves into. So there's no fear about that. To accept the mark means a person knowingly renounces God and Jesus and accepts the Antichrist. We can't do that today. It can't be done. Revelation 14 verse 10 says, The same who received the mark shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation, and he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Now let's go to the number of the beast. Verse 18. Here is wisdom. Let him that hath understanding count the number of the beast. For it is a number, or the number, of a man, and his number is six hundred threescore and six. There hasn't been much speculation about this number, has there? There's not many theories going around, and you know, no one's willing to speculate about anything. But um, every new president, American president that comes along, is they've worked out that they're the Antichrist. I remember when I was a younger Christian. Actually, I don't think I was a Christian. I remember when Ronald Reagan came into power. Anyone know what Ronald Reagan's middle name is? Wilson. Ron Alt Six. Wilson Six. Reagan Six. <laughs> Scary, isn't it? And I, I, at that time, I know there was all type of speculation going going around, and and uh, wasn't he shot as well? And he came back. So there was there were people speculating that it could be you know it could be him. Well, he's gone now, so that's throwing that one out the door. You see, every every Nero was one of them, and there's a, there's a few going down through the ages that they've actually um, uh, thought or they've tried to decipher their actual name. But but John here says that uh, he introduces this particular uh, thing with here is wisdom. He appeals to for wisdom in order to count the number of the beast, which is the, the number of a man. And and. A lot, of the, uh, a lot of the ideas and things that have come forth are quite complicated with the way they actually work. Um, in an attempt to solve this, this particular riddle of this verse, many have, uh, have considered the phrase to represent uh, Caesar, Nero in particular, uh, Caligula and other, other things. Uh, the popes have always been a very common, uh, common uh, answer for this one as well. And the explanations, if you look at them, are rather complicated. Many of them involve the numbering systems of, of uh, either Hebrew, Latin or Greek letters. Because okay? most of those, uh, most of those uh, uh, alphabets are connected with numbers, you see. And in Nero's uh, case, for instance, as an example, um, if it was spelled Caesar Neron, okay, and Caesar means Caesar, and Neron is the, the Hebrew way or the Hebrew ending of uh, Nero's name. 
um, you would put in, for example, K equals 100, S equals 60, R equals 200, N equals 50, uh, and then so on and so on, and then you'd end up with, guess what? 666. Must be him. Some theologians are so convinced that it's Nero that they believe that he's going to be resurrected again. He's going to come back to life. And he will be the Antichrist again. Some have further speculated, saying that it's going to be Judas who's going to be resurrected. Doubtful. Very doubtful that Nero or anyone else is going to be resurrected from the dead um, to do that, to become the Antichrist. A number of other suggestions have been made. For example, the, you know the six Roman numerals, which are I, V, X, L, C and D. If they're, they're, the, the, they're the, the letters that the Romans used to make up all their numbers, right? When you add up those specific letters, guess what they come out to? 666. So many have actually uh, alluded to the fact that the Antichrist has to be Roman because the letters add up to 666. You can speculate forever about who it is and who it's not. And I'll tell you why we can't know in a, in a minute or two. The best and simplest explanation here is that the triple six represents the number of a man. Hmm? And in, in, in God's system, six always falls short of seven, does it not? It simply means imperfection at every stage. Six is, in scripture, man's number. He was created on the sixth day. He works six days. Okay, and there's probably a few other things that, that are associated with six with mankind. But in a sense, even though man works six days, all his works are also deficient in every way. They always add up to six. So number of man is, is, is going to be six anyway. The other way of looking at it is that the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, is imitated by an unholy trinity, which is Satan, the beast, or the false, the, sorry, the Antichrist, and the false prophet. So they form their own trinity, much like God is a trinity. And these are revealed in chapter 13 that we've just read. Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet form an unholy trinity, and the world worships them during the tribulation and follows them. It may have to do with that, that their symbol is 666. But the Bible says that it's the number of a man. And I'll tell you why I don't believe that we will ever know. Because scripture says that he will not be revealed. The Antichrist will not be revealed. We won't know who he is until what? We are taken out of the way. We ain't going to be here. Now, the scripture here says that the number comes from his name, does it not? So if we don't know his name, how can you possibly know the rest of it? We can speculate forever, but we, we're not going to be here. But there are those who are going to be here after. And that's, they're the ones who John says, be wise here. I'm often... I'm very strongly of the opinion that a lot of the stuff we read in Revelation, we're trying to piece together with very limited information. But I'll tell you, those who are living in those days will be reading it like a newspaper. When they read the, this mark of the beast, they'll automatically know exactly what's going on. When, they, when John tells them here, have wisdom, his name will add up to 666, then they will know exactly who it is. It's for their benefit. So they don't take the mark and they don't fall in the trap. What I want to do now is to contrast... Let me ask you a question. In Revelation, does anyone else take a mark? Apart from the people who follow the beast, does anyone know... Are there any other people in, the, in, the, uh, in Revelation during the tribulation period that take some sort of a mark? Okay, I've got some nods over there. Who are they? Are they followers of the Antichrist? No, they're not. They are followers of God, believe it or not. And we've looked at this already. Go back 
to Revelation chapter 7, verse 2. Revelation 7, verse 2 says, And I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels, to whom it was given to hurt the earth and the sea, saying, Hurt not the earth, neither the sea nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. And I heard the number of them which were sealed, and there were sealed an 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel. Now go to chapter 9. 9 verse 1. And the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fall from heaven unto the earth, and to him was given the key of the bottomless pit. And he opened the bottomless pit, and there arose a smoke out of the pit, as a smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened by reason of the smoke of the pit, and there came out of the smoke locusts upon the earth, unto them was given power, as the scorpions of the earth have power. And it was commanded them that they should not hurt the grass of the earth, neither any green thing, nor any tree, but only those men which have not the seal of God in their foreheads. You see, there were men before the Antichrist came up with his little uh, logo who were sealed on their foreheads. And it was 144,000 chosen of God. These men were completely sold out for Christ sold out to him they had given themselves for his service and they were marked on their foreheads as god's followers they were the ones who will go out into all the world to preach the gospel boldly and millions will be converted because of their exploits they will be hunted down because of what they they will do but the point here is that these men were sold out for God and they were willing to have his name on their foreheads because they loved him so much. This is the contrast that we have here. You know something, that the thing that we always find in Revelation and throughout the whole Bible, and I've mentioned this probably a few times now, when God does something, what does Satan try to do? He has to copy it. You know what? If God can have 144,000 who were sold out to him, and are willing to take a mark on their foreheads, guess what? I'm going to do it. I'm going to have it. I'm going to have my followers who are sold out to me, and he will. He'll have those who are sold out who are willing to put his name across their foreheads. And he'll force the rest of them to have a mark too. They will bow the knee to Satan and receive his mark so they can continue to go on their merry way. The Antichrist will become their provider and their God. That's the choice they will make. Much like these 144,000 made the choice to follow Christ. But turn to chapter 14, Revelation chapter 14, verse 9, and we'll see what happens with these ones. 14 verse 9 says, And the angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any man... Worship the beast and his image and receive his mark in their forehead or in his hand. I want you to take note of something, all right? Now keep your finger keep your finger at this place. Go to oh sorry, go to verse eleven now. And the smoke of their torment ascendeth up for ever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, who worship the beast and his image, and and whosoever receiveth the mark of his name. Now go to chapter nineteen. I want, you to, I want you to take special notice of what goes along with the mark. 19 verse 20 says, And the beast was taken, and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, with which he deceiveth them that had received the mark of the beast, and them that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into a lake of fire burning with brimstone. Do you notice that something is... After this point, after chapter 13, where they introduce the mark, what does scripture always associate with the mark? I'll give you a big hint. It starts with W. Worship. 
Every time the mark is mentioned after chapter 13, it's always, always linked with the worship of the beast or the Antichrist. Interesting, isn't it? You know why? Because those who take the mark have pledged allegiance to him to worship him. They have accepted him as their God. So scripture then says that anyone who takes the mark will automatically be a worshipper of him. This is the whole crux of the matter here. They will be willing to become his servants and slaves in this earth because their desire is to worship him. They will be sold out to Satan. They will be more than happy to receive his mark and their end will be sure, as we've read in these particular passages, as sure as any of God's promises. But, does a person need to receive a mark in order to be thrown into hell? No. A person doesn't need to receive the mark or openly bow the knee to Satan. Today, millions, billions are happily serving Satan unknowingly and are headed for an eternity in the lake of fire. You don't have to wait for the tribulation to receive the mark. It's happening now. You see, a person is sealed today, not by pledging allegiance, you know, the day they die, that's sealed. No turning back. They're sealed. As good as any follower of Satan or the Antichrist in the tribulation, they will end up in exactly the same place. And it's happening today. You see, it's not what happens during the tribulation is all well and good. But what affects us is what's happening today. You see, 50, 100,000, if not more, just died in Haiti. And most of those will spend or looking forward to an eternity without God in a place of torment forever. They didn't bow the knee to Satan openly. They didn't receive any special marks on their person. They simply rejected Christ during their lifetime. And now they've been sealed. No change. No chance of redemption. There's no turning back. What are we going to do? Where do we fit in with all this? You see, there are, there are those in this world and the vast majority of people in this world are sold out to sin. They are slaves of sin, the Bible says, very clearly. We were slaves of sin, were we not? There are billions going into hell. Billions. Turn to Romans chapter 6, verse 16. Romans 6, verse 16 says, Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourself servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. But God be thanked that ye were the servants, ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. Verse 18. Being then made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh. For as ye have yielded your members servants to uncleanness and to iniquity unto iniquity, even now, even so now, yield your members servants to righteousness unto holiness. For when you were the servants of sin, you were free from righteousness. What fruit had ye then in those things, whereof ye are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now, being made free from sin... And become servants to God. Ye have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. 
What fruit had ye in those things whereof ye are now ashamed? Paul is asking a rhetorical question. Sometimes I look at this world and the things that the people in this world do make me physically sick. The lives they live, the habits they have, things they do are very distasteful, are they not? And the more you seek to live closer to God, the more distasteful those things become to you that even to mention them sometimes puts you off. You see, we're striving as servants of Christ. We are the ones who have bowed the knee to Jesus Christ. We've accepted him as Lord and Saviour. If we have a Lord, it means we have a Master. And if we have a Master then we are servants. The question is, are we living as profitable servants? Are we living as our master would have us live? Because we still have a choice God's given us. We've been made free from being bound to sin. The question is whether we're living for righteousness now. And if we're living for righteousness the thing that becomes difficult for us is to live in this world because we see so much sin and corruption and, and things around us and we can't do anything about it most of the time. It hurts to see people around us living the way they do. It breaks our hearts. And sometimes we fall into the trap of judging them. Do we not? We look at them and the way they live, and they, and they as people become distasteful to us. That we don't want to hang around with them or speak to them. We'd rather just avoid them. Because there are some people in this world who you just want, don't want to get near. And it's nice to come to church, isn't it? Because when we come to church, we can be who we are. We don't have to always have the guard up. That's the hard part of being a Christian. Sometimes you don't want to hang around people. You don't want to be even close. You don't want to even talk to them. Because the things they say when they use my Lord's name in vain cuts me deep to the heart. Now I can fall into the trap of looking at them and saying, I don't want nothing to do with you. You're a sinner and I'm going to keep away from you. That's easy to do, isn't it? So people during the, um, the early days of Christianity decided to lock themselves up in monasteries, not knowing how to deal with, with people around them who were sinful. But we know Scripture teaches us something different. It teaches us that we need to be among them, but not of them. We're in the world, but not of the world. Which is why we have a constant battle raging, not only within ourselves, but around, in and around us, we see. How do we work with this thing? If we're servants of righteousness, our lives should lead to holiness. Our lives should be chasing after that prize to be the most perfect servant of our Lord that you can imagine yourself to be. We often fall short of that. We often let, let him down. Let ourselves down, but we let him down more than anything else. He's freed us, he's made us, he's servants, he's paid for us with his own blood. And you know something? He's sealed us too. He's, we're marked because he gave us his spirit. How do we deal with the people in the world? Well, one way I've learned to deal with it is to look at them. One, remember that I was like them. And, but by the grace of God, I'd be there. There's nothing I did that caused me to be here but it's what Christ did that allows me to be here so first of all I'm no better than them it's only because of what Jesus did for me and second of all when, uh, when things we see around us become distasteful to us and it may stop us from sharing God's love with them because sometimes they're hard to love sometimes people around us are just very difficult to love they're almost unlovable but God gives us, by his grace, the ability to be able to love if we yield ourselves to him.
one way that I, I deal with that is I, I look at them as a, a family member. You can, you can try your own way as well. Think of, think of, if you're a parent, a child that may be going wayward. Think of you had your child and they got involved in drugs. Would it not break your heart? Well, God's heart breaks for them. So our heart needs to break too. If that was my child, how would I be? How would, how would my heart be if my daughter one day was running off the rails? Would my stomach not churn? Would I not seek to do the things, everything I could to try to bring her back? Well, you know something? God gave his son for them. God allowed his son to die for these people. So when we reject them, we reject God's provision for them. We need to be able to love them as closely as we love our own family. Because you know something? We're all human. As much as God has saved us and, and transformed us, we're just like them. If it wasn't for Jesus, we'd be exactly like them. So we need to remember, just as you love your, your family, your mother, your father, your brother, your sisters, your children, remember that these people God loves. And he loved them enough to send his son for them. If we accept that, we'll be, willing, we'll be good servants. Because we would live through his eyes. We will do the things that, that brings happiness and pleasure to him. Are we sold out this morning? These people during the tribulation are going to be happy to receive a mark. And they're going to pledge allegiance to this Antichrist. This morning, are you sold out for Christ? Have you given your heart to him in service? Do you live for him? If you don't live for him, live for him. The most unhappy people in this world are those people who have pledged allegiance and then don't live it. And then how are we serving him? If you're saved this morning, how are you serving him? Are you sharing the gospel with those who were, who were lost as we were? Are we willing to give our lives in service of our Lord this morning? I'll leave you with that. God bless you.